0: Hello and welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arsecast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. It's an interlull, folks. We are right slap bang in the middle of an interlull. I did think it was going to be a bit quieter. You know, you win against Brighton 2-0, not the most... Uh, exhilarating, enthralling performance, but another win, another three points on the board, and you kind of ease yourself into an interlal where players are gone away, there's some World Cup qualifiers, and people will keep an eye on those things. But from an Arsenal point of view, and uh, certainly in relation to what's happening on the pitch, everything should have been really quiet. And I suppose it is really quiet when it comes to what's happening on the pitch. It's what's happening off the pitch That's creating all the headlines. We ran a story last week about how Stan Kroenke had made an offer to Alisher Uzmanov to purchase his shareholding in the club. Just a little over 30% is owned by Uzmanov. Uh, Stan Kroenke has 67% of the Arsenal shares. And if that bid had been accepted, that would have allowed Kroenke, or would allow Kroenke, to uh, purchase all the remaining shares and take the club private. Now, of course, there are privately owned clubs in the Premier League. You think of Chelsea, for example, and people will say, Hey, that's uh, working out pretty okay for Chelsea. You know they've uh, won some titles, won some cups, won a Champions League. Ugh. Sorry, fucking Bayern Munich. How an- how annoying are Bayern Munich? I'm sorry think about what they did with Manchester United and with Chelsea in the Champions League finals what a pack of dickheads anyway I'm getting off the point what I'm saying is that there are football clubs that are owned privately it's not necessarily not in itself a bad thing but I think in the case of Arsenal it would be a bad thing if Stan Kroenke were to own it outright the plurality of ownership that at least provides some measure of accountability would be completely gone Uh, he'd have to provide cursory accounts nothing more than that there'd be no AGM no he wouldn't have to answer to Anyone because he would own the whole thing. So we're waiting after this story comes out. It was picked up by The Guardian. Amy Lawrence provided a bit more detail on the story. And we wait and we wait because the longer it goes without a response from Alishir Usmanov, the more worried you might get. Now, we ran a story on Arsbog News in August 2016, which suggested that Ali Uzmanov was open to selling his shares and moving to Everton, where his uh, former business partner, Farhad Mashiri, who owned uh, part of his stake in Arsenal, they had a, a company called Red and White Holdings. They were partners. Mashiri has gone to Everton, bought 49.9% of Everton. And the, the thinking is, of course, that the other 51.1% could be owned by Uzmanov at some point. But at that time, after we ran that story, there was a a statement issued by Usmanov who said quite categorically that he was not going to sell. He'd purchased his his shares in Arsenal, uh, not just for him, but for future generations of his family. That's what he said back in August 2016. So this time around, you're waiting for a statement from Usmanov, because if there's no statement, maybe there's something going on. Maybe there's there's uh, discussions between the two men. And we waited a little while, and then the story came out. And I think the first thing that we need to say, or I need to say, just to make it really clear, is that I think it's a positive thing that Usmanov uh, has said that he's not in talks with Kroenke about a sale. This is exactly what he said in his statement. I would like to be clear that I am not holding any talks with Mr. Kroenke about a sale. Now, I think there's something quite telling about the use of the present tense there. Maybe it's just me fearing the worst, but it's not a I will never sell to that man. We know that they both don't like each other. There's a real, uh, real bad feeling between them, but there's, it's not categorical. Is it? It's not, I will never sell to that man. And what's also changed is that his shareholding, which was in August 2016, one which was purchased for future generations of the Uzmanov family, is now one that he would consider selling. This is what he said. This is the last line. Uh, he said, I would like to assure supporters that I'm open to various future scenarios, a constructive partnership with the majority shareholder, the purchase of his stake either alone or in a consortium, or... If a party appears who shares my, and undoubtedly the majority of fans' vision for the club, I could consider the question of selling my stake. Now that is a big, big change in twelve months. From having no intention of selling and wanting to keep his shareholding for his future generations, for his children and his children's children's children's, children's children, He's now open to selling. And I think that's something we, we really should be be conscious of. The other thing that's popped up in conversation this week is the character of the people that own football clubs these days. And uh, I don't want to talk specifically about Usmanov. Uh, if you listen to the podcast that I did a few weeks back with James Montague, it's titled Billionaires. And we talk about Stan Kroenke. We talk about Ali Uzmanoff, We talk about the billionaires that now own football clubs and it's not just billionaires it's nation states it's countries that own football clubs and I think it requires a certain amount of mental gymnastics from all of us Arsenal fans have since Roman Abramovich took over at Chelsea pointed fingers and talked about blood money and talked about uh, Chelsea being a club that was only formed when he took over etc etc you know it's part of the way that we view the opposition but Chelsea fans do they really care? Do they really care that he made his money in unscrupulous ways that the close association Abramovich has and Usmanov, for that matter, with Vladimir Putin? Is that a problem for them? Maybe it is for some of them, but most of them will look at the uh, trophy cabinet and say, well, that's the price of modern football. We see it at uh, Manchester City, Abu Dhabi, owned by Abu Dhabi, basically, where homosexuality is illegal. Is that a thing that football fans should be concerned about? I think it is. Are Manchester City fans turned away by the fact that the people that own and finance and run their club come from a country where homosexuality can get you thrown in prison? Clearly that is not right. That's not something that we would tolerate in this society, the one that we live in. But the moral quandary you have as a football fan is do you give up on your football club because it's owned by somebody who you don't like? Paris Saint-Germain, were the fans of Paris Saint-Germain were they bothered by the fact that it was Qatar that have been bankrolling them over the last number of years despite all the questions people have about human rights in that country about the way that indentured slaves are used to build football stadiums They got Neymar. They might win the Champions League. They'll probably win Liga. So do do you care? Does success mean it's easier to overlook the people that own your football club. And I I want to be clear, I I really don't like Stan Kroenke. I think he's a terrible owner for Arsenal. I think he has displayed almost zero ambition for the football club since he's taken it over, bar maybe one or two articles or uh, statements released through back channels with relatively friendly journalists, and he'll say he's got great ambition for Arsenal to, to win things. But never once has he demonstrated that. And at the time when it was coming down to Kronky or Uzmanov, it seemed Kronky was the better man because he was going to let the people who run the club run the club because he didn't know anything about football. What did he know about Premier League football? But you know, do you need knowledge to have a desire to win and to be ambitious? I don't know that you do. And he has sat far away, and I think there are issues at board level, there are issues at the manager level that we've seen down the years where perhaps a more hands-on owner. Even if he's not involved in the day-to-day running of the football club, he's there to apply the pressure to maintain standards to say, this is not good enough. If you don't achieve this, then you're out. And I don't think that's happened at Arsenal. I think we've we've coasted into a comfort zone, and people talk about the players being in a comfort zone, but I think in some ways the manager is as well, because even if there's pressure from fans, and I don't mean to say that like his life was comfortable last season, but he's had that assurance from Kroenke. Certainly Gazzidis is. Ivan Gazidis paid almost a million pounds bonus last year. A million pounds of a bonus, £919,000 if we're being exact, bringing his total salary to uh, £2.6 million. I mean, if we'd won the league, if we'd won the Champions League, if we had increased our commercial revenues by a huge amount, then you could say, okay, The man deserves a a bonus of more than 50% of his salary. And I realize that bonuses are paid as part of salaries, etc., etc. But it doesn't send the right message, does it, when you finish fifth and out of the Champions League for the first time that your chief executive, who was nowhere to be found, literally nowhere to be found uh, during that difficult spell last season, he hid, he hid, and he gets a, a bonus of a million pounds. And this is, it all ties into the way that this club is being run. So I, I, I don't like the way that Kroenke runs this football club. But I also see someone like Ali Uzmanov as, as I mentioned in the blog the other day, if you're an opposition politician, right, it's easy to say the right thing. It's easy to promise the sun, moon, and stars because you know you don't have to. And Uzmanov can sit on the sidelines and say, well, I would do this, I would do that, I would do the other But that's easy because he knows he's never going to have to put his money where his mouth is. And I don't buy the idea that Usmanov cares about the fans. You don't care about the fans. They don't care. Kroenke and Usmanov and none of these people who own these football clubs really care about the fans. He may have done us some service by not uh, selling his shares to Stan Kroenke for the moment. But beyond that, we've no evidence that he gives a fuck. I mean, really. This is a man who made his fortune in the same way that Roman Abramovich did. And we're looking at Abramovich over the last number of years and being critical and pointing fingers. But because Uzmanov is not Cronky and nobody likes Stan Cronky, people are willing to overlook that. And I understand it. I completely understand it. If you were to say your football club's got to be owned by a good guy straight down the line... Loves his wife and 2.4 kids. Come on, that's not realistic. I know that. I know that people with big money and in big business are unscrupulous. I understand that. I know that it's completely unrealistic to think that Arsenal might have an owner or owners who would do everything out of love for the club. Who would sacrifice their own fortune for Arsenal because they love it so much. There is no... Arsenal billionaire philanthropist out there who's going to come in and save the day. I get it. I get it. But at the same time, can we not just have the conversation about the two people that own this football club, about the two men that own 97% of the shares in this football club? And if you could choose, would you not choose different people? Would you not choose better people if you could? I realize that we can't. And maybe we just have to get on with it. And I know that maybe the previous shareholders before the Kronky and Usmanov uh, era, some of them were involved in business practices that could be looked down on. Of course, I get it. I get it. But I don't think we should just blindly accept everything. That's my point. I think we should be able to talk about it and to express concerns and reservations about these things. Even if we can do nothing about it, maybe it's just a problem shared, is a problem halved and all that. We've got our own moral quandaries to deal with when it comes to our football clubs and who owns them and who runs them and everything else. Anyway, I'm kind of ranting a bit here, and we might talk a bit more about the ownership situation with our guest. But first, let's talk to him about finances, because that is what he does. He provides these forensic examinations of Arsenal's accounts and other teams' accounts as well. You'll know him off Twitter, at Ramble, Kieran O'Connor, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Andrew. How are you?
0: Well, thanks. And uh, Arsenal are in good shape financially. The, uh, the results came out last week. Um, they were leaked online, actually, weren't they? There was something strange went on. Uh, the results came out a bit early but uh I, I suppose the the bottom line is Arsenal are back in profit and that's that's a trophy we can all celebrate.
1: Um indeed it is I mean <laughs> you say you say back in profit. The last time Arsenal made a loss was way back in two thousand and two. So I mean to an extent they've always been the poster child for football finance, which on the one hand is a very good thing because it's a sign of a very well run club on the other hand, um, I think everyone would like to see a bit more of that, that um, financial wealth out on the pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these these results showed that Arsenal still have a fair bit of cash, not not quite as much as they had a couple of years ago, but, um, but still more than enough to buy, well, I was going to say two world-class players, but in the current market, let's say one. Yeah. Um, but as you say, the results were pretty good. Um, the profit before tax went up from 3 million last year to 45 million, um, which is impressive um, in anyone's language. Um, I mean, to put that into context, um, there's only one other club that's reported its 1617 results to date, and that's uh, Manchester United. Now, their profit was a bit bigger at 57 million, but, you know, they, they are um, a cash machine. Um, and if you look at, the previous season's results arsenal's forty five million would have been ahead of all of them mm. um, and and you know to to maybe put it another way um, the forty five million last season was more than the previous four seasons profits combined so um you know really spectacularly good performance um, revenue was up about twenty percent mm. um, which is worth seventy million to a record high, four hundred and twenty-three million. It's the first time Arsenal's revenue has been above four hundred million. Um, it was driven by um, the um, Premier League TV deal, yeah, which was worth about another forty million. And obviously, this is something that's going to benefit all the clubs when they announce their results. So it's a little bit misleading, Arsenal being so far ahead at the moment. Yeah, um, we also benefited from the Champions League. Um, we got better distributions. There's there's a fairly technical formula to calculate the distribution of the TV money. Um, one element of that is where you finished in the Premier League the previous season. So as Arsenal finished second um, the previous year, they got a bit more cash. Um, the Brexit effect, you could call it. The distributions are paid out in euros, so in sterling terms it went up. So that was all good. Mm. Um commercially
0: um, well ca- can I just stop you because i, I want to go yeah. on to to some of those points um in, in terms of in terms of the profit why why was there a jump uh from three million to forty five million was that primarily down to the television revenue
1: yeah it it, it it mainly was so um you know warren buffett um the the great american investor has a um, has a, a a whole raft of great sayings, and one of them is a a rising tide floats all boats Mm. Um, so to a certain extent you know Arsenal have benefited just from being in the Premier League and you know we'll see other clubs benefit from that um, by um, at least as much and Chelsea's growth will be much higher because they went from 8th to to Champions for example Um, the other element of the TV money as I said the Champions League Um, and you know that will hit us this year when we uh, because we've we've sort of dropped down to the Europa League though I must say as a fan I'm actually quite enjoying the Europa League I've mean, yeah. enjoyed the Koln match and the the, the, the Batty Borisov um, yeah. extravaganza you know seeing some of the youngsters um uh, actually was was is sort of a bit more exciting in in some ways
0: it's just less familiar isn't it I mean it's probably the first time ever that the word extravaganza has been used in in relation to Batty Borisov but I do I know I know exactly what you mean just by by sheer Virtue of being different, it is. It's just a bit more entertaining.
1: Exactly. So you know, financially, it's, it's not great. Um, the club has estimated that being in the Europa League on a net basis will cost us around twenty million. Mm. Um, I think it might be a little bit more than that, but you know, there's quite a few factors coming into play. Would it would it be uh,
0: fair to say that if if actually if there was a time to drop out of the Champions League and into the Europa League? W- it would be fair to say probably it would have had a lot more impact a few years ago, but now because of the increased television revenue um, from the Premier League, it means that the gap between the Champions League clubs and those below the Champions League is not as great as it was. So perhaps this is something that we're better able to uh, to take on board.
1: Yeah, that, I, I guess that's partly true. Um, what what UEFA did with the the most recent TV deal was they deliberately gave a bigger slice to the Europa League to reduce that gap. Right. So that helps. Um, the second um, element, which helps this season, is because United um, won the thing last year and so qualify for the Champions League. There are fewer English clubs, so um, you get a bigger slice of the pie. Um, so from, from that perspective, you're right? Um, I would say if, if if we stay out of the Champions League for too long, mm. it, it's clearly not a good thing, particularly when it comes to securing good commercial deals. Yeah. Um, and this, of course, is Arsenal's Achilles heel when it comes to revenue.
0: Yeah, the, the, the commercial revenue did go up, but only by 10%. And you have a, a chart on the great Twitter thread that you did. You talk about the uh, the commercial revenues. I mean, they're behind... Manchester United and everybody understands that Arsenal are going to be behind Manchester United from a commercial point of view but they're also yep. a fairly long way behind Manchester City which I thought was quite interesting they're more or less the same as Chelsea and Liverpool um, and we, we might talk about Arsenal's improvement but I want to ask what what uh, in terms of the Manchester City commercial revenue how <sighs> I don't mean to cast aspersions at Manchester City, but I mean, how legitimate is that? Because we know United have been a behemoth for years. They were ahead of the curve when it came to commercials. Uh, City have only been, I won't say a a big club, but you know what I mean? They've only been around the top of the Premier League for uh, maybe less than a decade at this point. So how have they built that uh, amount of commercial revenue? And is it all above board, dare I say it?
1: yeah so I, I think you're right that the united are in a league of their own they're about 160 million ahead of arsenal and there's no chance of catching them up um city um i i would say there's a bit of a mixture so it's clear that a lot of their deals um have come from the country of their owner um so from that basis you can say well that's not um you know that's not necessarily something that you would Mm. um, appreciate um however what they've done which is quite smart is they've got a lot of um medium-sized deals they don't have like one blockbuster deal so if you compared them with paris saint germain for example um they have this like 200 euro million deal with the qatar tourist authority um and and that 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 does have a bit of a smell about it, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and UEFA did indeed punish them and say, look, that that clearly is overvalued mates rates. Call it what you will. Yeah, um, City um, also, I think to their credit, um, have an excellent commercial operation. Um, so they've secured a lot of the secondary sponsors um, that that sort of build up, which has actually been the driving force of United. I mean, United have two great shirt deals with. Um, Chevrolet and Adidas but they also have um, loads and loads of secondary deals and this I think has been Arsenal's weakness but I think the com- the, the comparison that Arsenal um, the Arsenal board should really look at is with Chelsea and Liverpool um, so yes you're right we got a 10% increase which it is pretty good, considering that that you know that none of that is a, an increase in the main shirt deals. Um, however, it only brings us up to the same sort of level that Chelsea and Liverpool were mm. last year. Um, so you would expect them to be even higher when they they publish their uh, yeah. sixteen seventeen accounts. and And I think that legitimately we could aspire to be above them. Um, and I think that this it, it, it's a bit of an indictment of. Um, Arsenal's um, uh, management, and 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 I would actually say Gazidis specifically. I mean, there was a, there was a. Uh, I mean, the full Arsenal report was published yesterday, um, which revealed that Gazidis um, uh, received a full package of two point six million, second year in a row, and and I mean he he's trousered just about ten million over the last four years. Um, which you know it's it's nice work if you can get it but I I would expect given his commercial background that he would have done a little bit better than he has
0: yeah I I think that's a an interesting one because you look at those things I mean clearly what happens on the pitch isn't necessarily going to be reflective of, of what his what the criteria were for his bonus but if you're to talk about uh, increasing the the commercial deals the sponsorships people talk about why Arsenal don't have a shirt sleeve sponsor when many other clubs are having those and I think the uh, the deal that they did with Emirates precludes any other sponsorship on the shirt at all so was that was that something that was short sighted? or, uh, you know, not knowing that this kind of thing was going to be allowed in the future? Um, And how do Arsenal, uh, an Arsenal that's fifth at this moment in time, playing Europa League football and already finding it difficult when they're in the Champions League and uh, supposedly uh, challenging for, for the title, uh, they're finding it difficult to attract these sponsors. How are they going to do that when the stakes are a bit lower, when the stadium's a bit emptier, when the yeah. players on the pitch are maybe not as high quality as they might be?
1: Yeah, so I think there's there's, there's two elements to that: the the the, the lack of um, sort of foresight foresight in in um, when they sign the deal. Uh, so when when they sign the deal, it was actually pretty good in in contrast to the others and others have leapfrogged them since but you know there are elements to that which you look at and you think well i that's not so good so so emirates bundling in the stadium na- naming rights which um uh, go far longer than the shirt deal i think they go to 2028 yeah but, you know that, that they, they've almost been given a freebie there which um uh, is not great um the, the, the the training kit, lack of sponsor. I mean, United were the first to do that. Um, they're, 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 I don't know for sure, but I, I would say it's almost certain that there's something in the contract that precludes a, a shirt sleeve sponsor. Otherwise, I think we would have we'd have we'd one by now. Mm. I mean, you know, maybe people say, well, the Arsenal um, sleeves are... Um, tradition, we won't touch them, but I, I don't think so in this day and age. No, I don't think so. <laughs> if I'm completely honest. And I mean, the second part of your question, I think, is 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 the really interesting one, which is um, we've clearly weakened our hand when it comes to negotiating new deals by being out of the Champions League. So success on the pitch is one element, but also talent on the pitch. And, and stars, I mean, this is one of the reasons why United, um, for example, invested so much in Pogba. And, and although it's a bit cheesy, his old brand and the emoji and all that stuff, um, it does help them commercially. And if you look at where we are now, um, with um, every chance that by the end of this season, if not before Sanchez and Ozil have gone, it's not as if we have much you know, left in the, in, in, in the form of talent or, or star quality. I mean, yeah. not, it might be a good team, but that's not, not the same thing for the commercial sponsors. I mean, the interesting thing is that Arsenal make great play of what they call the virtuous circle. Um, Which is is sort of blinding common sensory, they say, if you have more on field success, that will increase the fan base and the engagement from the fans, that will in turn increase the revenue, which will give us more money to invest in the team and produce more on field success. Mm. Um, But at the moment, you know, one rather important part of that is a little bit broken which is the on-field success
0: yeah and it does it doesn't feel like they've always been doing what they can to repair the circle if there's a you know maybe it's a triangle at the moment i don't know what it is but um yeah i mean it's it also suggests maybe that you know that's it that's an issue that they can address as a football club but i do wonder if perhaps in terms of staff in terms of uh commercial uh directors in terms of what we've got at board level whether those are things that could also help improve the results in in those regards i mean of course everything stems from the pitch but if you've got a really shit hot commercial dude who can go out and do lots of uh, good deals that would certainly help offset that
1: i think that's a good point and and you only have to look to the northwest, I Liverpool have secured good commercial deals when they've been out of the Champions League for many years. Yeah, um, United also have had a couple. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago they were out of Europe altogether, um, and they were still raking in the deals. Um, now you can argue they're a special case because of their history. You know, Munich, Busby Babes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and, and and I think there is something in that. Um but what they do have is an extremely smart commercial operation. It's a big operation. They have a lot of people in there. They 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 have sort of regional offices. They have a they have a s a Swish office in London. Um so that they invest a lot of money in it but but they, they really do produce and deliver. And I think, you know, Arsenal traditionally are a club that are not overly ambitious. Um, and I think you see that a little bit in the transfer market. Um, I think you also see it off the pitch in, in in the commercial operation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to see if that's something that is addressed. And normally that's something that would come from on um, high, very, very high. Um, yeah. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's Dan Kroenke. And that might be something we touch on in, in the conversation in in a few minutes time. Um-
1: Dumb.
0: Wages is something that people look at all the time and say, generally speaking, your wage bill should more or less tell you where you're going to finish in the table. So, the you know, the big teams have the biggest wage bill and the teams with the biggest wage bills generally finish near the top of the table. There's a real outlier there, uh, as much as it might pain me to say it, uh, in, in mm. that Tottenham's wage bill is what well, maybe – uh where was it here okay the, the 100 million pounds arsenal's is uh, just 200 million pounds um and, and we're not seeing the return for wages uh, in terms of premier league positions
1: yeah so so uh, you're right and, and studies over the years um show there's a very strong correlation between the wage bill um and success on the pitch yeah um tottenham do get a lot of bang from their buck. Um, You you can see how painful it was for me to say that, but it's it's true. Um,
0: Is it going to be a problem for them, do you think, given the the increased stature that they have and they've got some very high-profile, very good players? You think of uh, Harry Kane, obviously, Deli Ali, who are probably players who merit greater salaries than they're on right at this moment in time at Tottenham.
1: Yeah, I, I think it, it will be a problem. They, 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 I, Good. <laughs> I, I must admit, I, I thought it would be a problem earlier. So I'm I'm a little mm-hmm. bit surprised that they've managed to hold their wage bill at that hundred level, um, hundred million level, really, for the last four or five years. And and and, and um, but I do think now, um, particularly with some of the wage deals that are there, that it would be a surprise if players like Kane and Ali weren't tempted to move. Um, and, and I think it comes back to also the sort of success issue. So um, if if they don't win anything in the next two seasons, maybe even this season, I would say it would be almost certain that they would go, at least one of them.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, that might, uh, that might help their wage bill or help bring things back in line. Um, I mean, is it a case that Arsenal's wage bill, when we hit the end of this current season, is going to take a dip as well? Uh, particularly with players that have left this summer. And, uh, you know, with talk of big extensions for the likes of Alexis Sanchez and Mesut Ozil, they have not materialized. Uh, And those are, you know, had they happened, we would see Arsenal's wage bill even higher.
1: So I, I, I would be really surprised if it went down. Um, I think there are a number of reasons why it hasn't gone up as much as people might have expected. Um, the obvious one is is the lack of qualification for the Champions League, so no bonus payments for that. that that's probably I would say around ten million that, that would have been there if we you know qualified for that competition as we we normally do. Um, the other issue is is I mean people label it financial fair play, but it's actually the Premier League's version which is known as short-term cost control. Um, and what this basically is aiming to do is to say, all this lovely additional money we get from the Premier League TV deals would normally just flow into the pockets of the players and agents. Um, so to prevent that, what the Premier League have done is said, um, you can only increase your wage bill by a small amount, um, which is now 7 million a year, Um uh, unless you increase your revenue by means other than the Premier League TV deal, so what that would mean, for example, is match day, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't think any of us would want to see that go up because it, it basically means ticket price rises. Yeah. Um, then or um, Champions League, well that's not going to happen. Um, player sales that they, they they throw into the mix, and again, you know, do you really want to sell? your best players so so it, it brings us once again back down to the background to the the commercial issue um and that that's why clubs like united and city haven't really struggled with wages because they've you know their commercial revenue has been growing like billy ho so so they still have some space in the wages um i think also you know if if, if ozil and sanchez go you would have to hope that they would get replaced by players of a similar calibre. And and they're not going to be cheap in terms of wages either.
0: Mm, That's right. Yeah, it's a good point. And I don't know, I I was thinking about that a bit earlier and how, how when it comes to next summer, are Arsenal going to cope with the loss of those two players and the two star players, like you say, the, the impact that it would have on the club from a commercial point of view, a reputational point of view. It feels to me like Arsenal need to do something in January. And I know it's not the ideal time to buy players, but I think if you are at the point where you're accept, uh, accepting Sanchez and Ozil are going to go, uh, and probably going to go in the summer, even if you would be keen on selling them or open to selling them in January, the players themselves might want want to wait because they can leave on a Bosman and get the signing on fee. So it feels to me like Arsenal need to do something in January. Uh, Let's say go and get Thomas Lamar in January because you've got time to prepare rather than doing it all at the last minute as seemed to happen at the end of the the transfer window this summer. In terms of what Arsenal have available to them in transfer revenue, there is cash there. There is
1: cash. So, I mean, if you look at the balance sheet, um, there's 180 million um, it, it's a bit lower than the peak um, in 2015 which was about 230 million mm. um, because we have actually um, started to spend money on players in the last three years There's has re- been a really significant increase compared to the few years before that but that 180 million as, as the club is at great pains to emphasize is a bit deceptive because you 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 have to take off things like a debt service reserve which is about 36 million mm. um there's money owed on transfers etc etc um and and it's one of those questions that people often ask me they say how much cash can we spend and it's it's genuinely an impossible question to answer because it depends on all sorts of factors like you know, do you sell players? Do you build stage payments into your transfers? Are you willing to take on additional debt? Uh, that said, um, right now, I would say that Arsenal could spend um, 90, maybe 100 million. Um, and, and, you know, without sort of worrying about any of the other sort of uh, factors coming into play. Mm. Um, the AST has, has has done an estimate. Um, we, we do work independently, but we quite often come up with similar figures. And I think I read the other day that they came up with 90 million as well. So it, it's in that sort of ballpark.
0: Right. Well, so certainly scope to, uh, to do something in January, even if it's not the, the ideal time to, to bring in players. But, you know, I think yeah, you,
1: could, you could buy um, 45 Rob Holdings. Well, there you
0: go. There you go. Talk <laughs> about putting an end to our injury problems. We'd have so much strength and depth. It would be amazing. Um, I mean, where you know, let, put your um, Arsenal supporting hat on to one side and imagine that you're now making some kind of a decision for Arsenal Football Club and you're looking at the situation of Ozil and Sanchez. Mm. W- w- would you be tempted to try and sell them in January?
1: Yes. You would? Oh, with, oh, without a doubt. Um, I, I think that I, I mean I, I was I was disappointed both from um, a sort of businessman's perspective and actually an arsenal supporter's perspective that we didn't sell them in the summer
0: um, both, and most th- of them my or... thinking
1: was you know you're leaving a hundred million on the table which you know potentially goes down to zero if they run down their contracts. I mean, if we sell them in January we might get a bit but not as much as in the summer, and that's a hundred million that could have gone on finding some good. Quality replacements, um, but but I also sort of think that they're probably going to be disinterested. I mean, Özil is carrying some sort of injury. I'm doing that quote <coughs> box. Type, <by> the way, <coughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Sanchez, I think, um, although a great player, has always had he, he sort of plays for himself. Um, quite a lot, mm. um, and I think that that might help us. You know, if he's playing for himself and he gets a goal, fantastic. But I, I, I would I would have um, I would have definitely sold them in the summer, and I think if the opportunity arises, I would sell them in January.
0: Well, yeah, I, mean, I suppose in some way it depends on how the season is going and how they're performing. Um, but there have been players in the past who've run their contracts down and uh, ended up. Marginalised, I think it would be fair to say, in the final year of their contracts, because Arsene Wenger doesn't view them as players who are committed. And I think when it gets to the business end of the season, there's got to be that worry, doesn't there? That is a guy going to make a tackle? Is he going to give 100 percent in case he picks up an injury? Of course, that's the risk that they run as well, though, isn't it? When they when they decide they're not going to sign a new deal, signing a new deal gives you some measure of security, gives you a wage increase. So yeah. um, you know, it's on it's on them to an extent as well. And just a final thing in terms of finances. Um, you know, we, we, as fans, look at the team and we can always see somewhere that we could could view more investment as being worthwhile. But Arsenal have spent in the last three years, and I know the, the ball or the goalposts have moved considerably this summer. And it probably doesn't sound like a huge amount of money anymore, but 203 million pounds on transfers in the last three years for a club whose, uh, you know, I hate to say net spend, et cetera, was not always that high uh, or whose outlay even was not always that high. Uh, it's been a, it's been a fairly um, free spending three years. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. And, and it's, um, I, I, the last time I wrote a full blog on Arsenal, you know, as is my habit, I, I, mm. I reached back to the 80s for a song title and I went for New Sensation by In Excess. And, and what I actually meant was it was a, a a new feeling because Arsenal was spending money, big money, on players. Um, and as you say, it's over 200 million in three years. It's over 100 million in the 16, 17 accounts alone. And and, and, and you know, I, I, I'd sort of looked at this over... A long period and obviously 200 million in three years you're averaging just under 70 million a, a year mm. and in, in the seven years prior to that the average net cash outflow was just five million so it's a it's a really really significant change and when the club says look we are spending money and it's a similar story by the way in terms of investment in infrastructure they're right um, so what has changed is that they no longer Spend so much on just financing the debt and the interest that is still a burden for us by the way. we still have to pay out about twenty million a year on interest and loan repayments, mm-hmm. which not uh, every other club has to do um, but it, it has it has come down and and the other thing that we 've stopped doing is just building up our cash balance
0: yeah, yeah, um, but in some ways, so it kind of feels like we 're running to stand still as well though yep. doesn 't it you know we, we have increased the spending. But then, so is everybody else around us, and maybe it's an illustration, Kieran, that that while investment, of course, is important, it's not necessarily solely down to how much you spend. No. It's down to who is using the players that you spend the money on.
1: I, I think that's absolutely right, and and I mean, I, I, I guess what was disappointing to to people like me that were just looking at this cash mountain accumulating was that if we'd spent it at that time Mm. it it would have gone an awful lot further both in terms of um you know how the transfer market inflation has has taken the prices to an astronomical level um and also just in terms of some of the currency moves i mean you know many of the players we buy are from abroad and if you look at the euro exchange rate and what's happened to that um you know the 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 poor old pound in your pocket doesn't go quite so far Mm. um So I I think, you know, that that, that was disappointing. But also, if you're going to spend, you you have to spend it intelligently. Um, It is, to be fair, more challenging for English clubs. I mean, people will sort of point to clubs like Juventus and others on the continent saying, look at, you know, these great players they've picked up for, you know, 10, 15, 20 million. I mean, the reality is that as soon as an English club, particularly a big one, walks through the door, the price goes up. You know, it's a bit like that that TV show. Is uh, it Harry Enfield where they say, oh, I, "I see you coming." Yeah. They see
0: an English club
1: coming, and they then they sort of say, "Right, you know, he's your price."
0: Yeah, I mean, it is. It's definitely a challenge, and I think, it, but it's a challenge for all the English clubs, and it's. Uh, uh, I think there are challenging times ahead for for Arsenal from a financial point of view and how it's managed on and off the pitch. Um, well look thank you for the uh, the insight into the finances and um, we might move on and and talk a little more generally about Arsenal um as a fan of Uh, I would be fair to say a a, a fair few years at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Since
1: 1970. So, yeah, a fair few.
0: Okay, well, that's that's a fair few. I'm I'm being really, you know, diplomatic here. Um, Generous. Generous. Okay, that's even better. Um, How are you viewing what's going on at board level now? I mean, can we draw any kind of line between the fact that there could be improvements at board level and executive level and the... Current unhealthy situation that we have between the two majority shareholders uh, at the football club.
1: Well, it, it, it certainly doesn't help, and we, we we have these two majority shareholders, as you say, but but really all the power mm. lies with one, which is Stan Kroenke, who has a you know sixty seven percent stake. Um, I mean, the the board. I mean, they might all be fine gentlemen um, with with great records in the city, but but you know, really, Stan calls the shots. Um I, I think and I think you were probably the same. At the time that Cronke that arrived, I I had a pretty favourable impression of him. I thought he's a guy that's involved in, in sport, um, he has a lot of teams, um, he seems to be an owner that's not going to intervene and come in shouting the odds and waving a big stick. Um and and I thought that was probably what we needed. Um, but I think over the years, he's he's revealed himself to be someone that is seems to be uninterested in competing at the top level. Um, he's obviously very interested in competing in the Premier League and accruing the riches that come with that status. Mm. Um, but it, it just doesn't feel like he's willing to even invest the resources we have let alone put in any additional funds um to take us to the next level and, it, and it's interesting really because you say take take us to the next level arsenal um have the seven, even before this year's jump had the seventh highest revenue in world football so you think well that's that's fantastic but it's yeah. just that those clubs above them are, are clearly a, a level beyond and for us to get there i think we would need an owner with a lot more ambition than Stan Kroenke.
0: It does mean something as well, doesn't it, when the owner is ambitious? Because I like you, you know, when he came in, it was the idea that, well, here's an American guy, what does he know about the Premier League? But if he's going to let the club run... Uh, be run the way it has been run. And from the, from that business point of view, for the most part, you'd say it was a well-run club. It was trying to prepare for financial fair play. It was living within its means, living within its natural resources and and spending the money that it generated. But if you have somebody with more ambition, they could perhaps put some pressure on. Take that risk in the transfer market. Don't build up the cash reserves. Make Be a bit more um, ruthless when it comes to certain players. Okay, you've had your time, but now look, you go and we'll move you on for X amount of money. We'll spend a bit more money and bring in somebody better. And I think we've ended up in this kind of comfort zone from top to bottom where nobody really is putting pressure on anybody else. And all the pressure that comes on the club is external. It's from fans, it's from media, but internally it doesn't feel like those uh, pressures are there.
1: Yeah, it it does feel very samey. And, and you know, I, I must admit, this season I've sort of found it quite difficult to get excited, even when we play well, because I just sort of think, well, it, it, it's it's going to be Groundhog Day again. Um, and and I think that people sort of look at what could possibly change. There's obviously been a lot of talk about um, arson, and 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 you know whether he he going might be the catalyst for change, and and perhaps it would, but. You know, at the same time, you'd still have the same um, board, the same governance, the same infrastructure supporting him, and and the same, uh, as you put it, lack of pressure to to to, to excel. Um, and you know, arguably, you can say when you look at Arsenal's financial resources, um, you know, we've performed at least at par, probably better than par, most seasons. Um, but th- th- there's always been that sort of nagging feeling that if we just did a little bit more, I mean, how many times have people said, if we just had two more players, <laughs> this would be a <laughs> Premier League winning squad? Yeah. Uh, I think we need rather more than two at the moment. But there were sure. many years when it was always two. Um, and and uh, uh, Kroenke, I, I think, unless the Leopard dramatically changes its spots, is not really the owner that is going to um, provide that sort of impetus. <sighs>
0: Arsen Wenger, you mentioned Arsene Wenger, and I, you know, I've been of the opinion that Arsenal could use a new manager for a little while, but he obviously decided he wanted to stay, and Stan Kroenke decided that he wanted him to stay, and despite the fact that I'd like to see someone new in charge, there's a part of me that is slightly terrified of it, not because of change itself, but because I fear that maybe as a club we are not r- set up for it or ready. Yeah to make the transition from a manager like Arsene Wenger who does so much to the next generation of young, dynamic coach who's going to need more people around him than we have at the club right now. We go back to the director of football stuff and I do wonder sometimes if Arsene Wenger's decision to stay was based on his perhaps belief that the club's not ready to, to, to take on a new manager in, in a way that he looks at uh, an absentee owner and he looks at a board that's made up of some old men and Ivan Gazidis and a young man in Josh Kroenke, who again, probably has no real knowledge of premier league football beyond what he's picked up, uh, from the odd board meeting when he's over. And th- th- I think that's, it's certainly something we've got to give consideration to.
1: Yeah. And I think that, the if, and when Arsenal does go, um, that the club would not really just be replacing him. Uh, as you say, they would have to replace in a number of other key posts. Um, scouting might be one. Mm. Um, academy might be another. Um, chief executive, I, 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 I'm really not sure about Gazidis because sometimes I think, well, he, he really should be an awful lot more effective than he is. Um, at the other t- on other occasions, I think he looks like a man whose hands are tied. And he's operating within a certain set of um, constraints. And if he was allowed to break free, maybe he'd do a lot, lot better. Maybe, maybe he'd be able to bring in a quality director of football, for example. Mm. Um, and, and so it, you're right. There are a lot of imponderables about it. Um, after many, many years, I, I, I basically sort of came to the same conclusion as yourself. I thought that we should have a change of manager um that doesn't mean I'm a sort of you know rabid thing I must go but I I, I yeah. just I just feel like the club needs a change and, and I would fully acknowledge that um that might be a change for the worse but I, I just don't really want to go through the same sort of seasons as, as as we have been doing for the last few years I mean winning the FA Cup's great and and you know p- people who support other clubs would be um, perfectly entitled to say, look, you know that that that's great. We know what are you complaining about? Yeah. Um, but it just feels like the club should be aspiring to do a lot better.
0: Yeah, it's always struck me that that considering the the ambition it took to move from Highbury to the Emirates, the financial constraints—constraints constraints I think is a polite way of saying. Uh, what we did f- from a financial perspective—they were shackles. You know, the the club was hamstrung for years financially, just to get the money to move to the new stadium, to uh, to to compete, to put yourself in the same league as the big European clubs, to try and compete for the best players. And it feels to me like the people who came in after the stadium were built—they're cronky they're they Gazidis. You know, uh, for the most part, all those old old board members were gone. And these guys arrived and they had this beautiful new stadium and they had this massive, yeah. you know, uh, match day revenue and new sponsorship deals and new corporate revenue. And they kind of felt like it, f- it felt to me like they coasted rather than mm-hmm. continuing to push uh, the ambition that got us from Highbury to the Emirates. They they went into it thinking, well, job is done and we'll just continue along like this.
1: I think that's very true. And and, and, and you're right to- um, draw attention to the fact that it was extraordinarily ambitious um, to do that move and, and, and to do that stadium move um, at such a high cost um, keep it within Islington you know. Where, whereas the easier move might have been to move it elsewhere but it was good to stay close to Highbury um, and all the time maintain a really good standard of performance. I mean, all those years qualifying for the Champions League with those financial shackles. I mean, there there, there was money available, but it, it not not as much as there is now. Clearly, um, and and it, they built a, a not only did they build a, a great stadium, but they built a perfect foundation as a launch board mm. to, to to go to that next level, and and they just didn't 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 make the move.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's the. Uh the really disappointing part for me because now it feels like you you you've lost momentum you've got to take a step backwards or another step backwards before you can start going forwards again um, the last thing I just want to ask you about is what 's gone on this week. Obviously, Ali Shauzmanoff has changed his position quite marked uh, markedly from the one he he held just yeah. over a year ago, where he said he had no intention of ever selling his arsenal shares and now he 's open he would consider selling his stake if he could find somebody who shared his vision for what the the club might be. Uh, for the
1: right price no sorry the right
0: person well exactly exactly i think we can we can read between the lines there that if the money is right he's he's open to to selling and i don't think that precludes stan cronky despite what uh people might like to think i don't think that danger is is particularly gone yet but from a business point of view, he's in an, a really unenviable position, isn't he? He owns 30% of something fantastic from which he can get no value or no uh, no joy uh, unless it's monetary by selling. Yes. Um, he, he can't be involved. cronky won't let him be involved. And even if somebody... You know, let's say you or I, Kieran, uh, the, the Euro Millions comes up and we win it five weeks in a row and we go and we say, we'll buy those shares off you. We're going to end up in the exact same position, mm-hmm. despite how much noise we might make. Stan Kroenke will say, well, good for you. You've got 30%. I've got 67%. You can sit over there. Um, it feels inevitable, really, that if Usmanov has any ambition to do anything in English football, that it's got to be somewhere else.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's probably the most likely outcome. Um, on the other hand, he might just stick it out and think at some stage, Cronkie um, might just sell to, to me yeah. um, for, for whatever reason. Maybe it's because, you know, he, he, um, he, he, he loses interest or he needs the money for investment in his NFL team or, or whatever. Um, you know, you, you just hang on because you think, well, it would be really terrible if I went and then somebody else came in and bought, bought it yeah. from under me. I, I, I think the, the the like the chances of Kroenke selling to Usmanov are really low. Um, I, I, but you know, then again, you think, well, um, one of the main reasons that Kroenke bought into the club is clearly the TV rights, um, which may be a bubble that bursts, but not quite yet. And you know, there's there's talk of Um, new companies coming into the frame you know Netflix, Facebook etc. So I I think for a while there's there's, there's still mileage in getting more TV money and the the regulations from UEFA and indeed the Premier League are helping clubs make profit. So you know Arsenal made a big profit. I would expect almost all the other Premier League clubs to also make money um, when their results are announced Um, and, and You know, at the moment, there's not really an obvious way for an owner to get the money out. I mean, Kronke obviously had two years where he charged three million uh, for his um, uh, advisory fee. He stopped doing that now. But, I mean, it's not huge money. Um, If he were to buy out Usmanov um, and have... Um, and get to 100% could he, he could then compulsorily purchase the other shareholders um, he would have the freedom to do pretty much what he wanted because um, the one good thing that Usmanov does now is he blocks any so-called special resolution which needs a 75% majority so Kronke with his 65, 67% is just short and if he the sort of thing that that he could do with a special resolution is 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 start to pay out dividends, for example.
0: Or, I mean, United uh, already do that. Could, he could um, borrow off the 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 asset value of the club as well. Could he?
1: Yes, exactly. There's there's, there's all sorts of things he could do. He, he could delist the company, um, so you would have less transparency. Um, he'd stop the a- AGM. I mean, whether that's a, a ma- major loss, I'm not so sure because it's stage managed. So within an inch of his life but uh, um, there, there, are off, there are a lot of things that he could potentially do um, which I don't think us fans would like to see
0: Right, well look we'll have to see uh, how it plays out over the, the coming months and uh, who owns all the shares by the end of the season we'll, we'll just have to wait and see but as ever uh, Kieran, it's been uh, fascinating talking to you thank you very much
1: My pleasure thanks for having me
0: thank you very much indeed to Kieran. You can find him and all his amazing work on Twitter at Swiss Ramble and on his blog which is SwissRamble.blogspot.com uh, He looks at the finances of not just Arsenal but lots of other clubs besides and if that's your bag then there is a uh, treasure trove of information and blog posts for you there. So check it out SwissRamble.blogspot.com Right. Gonna leave it there because there isn't really very much to talk about given that it is an interlo There's no football going on apart from international football and uh, yeah, I'm not sure I can be arsed with much to that. Not this evening, anyway. Uh, James and I will be here on Monday. We'll have an Arsecast Extra for you, but for various reasons, we won't be able to record that until Monday evening, so we're not going to have it for you until Monday night at some stage. Probably, I would say, around uh, 10 o'clock, because we're not going to be recording till about 8, so uh, sorry to disrupt your schedule, but there you go. Sometimes stuff is just out of your hands and out of our hands, but we'll uh, we'll cope with the chaos around us. Have yourselves a great weekend. Wherever you are in the world, stay happy, stay safe. I'll catch you on Monday with James. Until then, cheers. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.